It's time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think. Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. What's up, y'all? <laughs> greens, greens. What's up, y'all? It's pretty not, good. Not but try. Well, you're going to you're gonna have to work uh, coming up with a good one. Um, it's, and it's much harder than you think. That's why I'm stuck with the uh, hey, howdy, hey, which people wonder about that, I think. But there's like a Disney song. I explained this a long time ago. My younger daughter, she loved the Disney music from the park and all that stuff. And there was like a song, and it has Hey Howdy Hey in it. And we were driving back from a road trip out, I don't know where we were going, but we were listening to that. I'm like, and and I told her I would use it on the show. And she was so excited that I've used it ever since because I love my daughters so much. So it was kind of cool to uh, be able to do that for her. Only that. Considering how long ago that had to be for either one of your daughters to get excited over that. That's, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. We've been doing the show a long time. I don't know. <laughs> oh, uh, there's, it's got to be like a thousand hours or something by now. Somebody, somebody go and calculate how many hours we've been doing the show. <laughs> Next homework assignment 100 points. I was going to say, Dad, John took forever to settle on greetings, greetings. It was right. Hello, everybody. Right. I'm just like, yeah, John, you can't do hello, everybody. <laughs> wait, wait. Yeah. Well, Michael did it so perfect. He should do that because it sounded like, like, right. right. Hello, everybody. <laughs> hello, everybody. And there you go. That's not a bad idea. How's everybody doing today? <laughs> well, you know, I'm always thinking about uh, how my, my good friend John Blickman's doing. Out there in the in the wilds of the Indiana, and uh, working on the next great thing. One of the great things that they've been working on is doing uh, commercial scale equipment, and they've been doing it for for quite a while now, a number of years. And one of the cool things he's done is when you're doing, you know, a, a nano brewery or a, you know microbrewery. You, you need to conserve space. You don't want to pay for some huge building where you, you know, have to, uh, you know, sell a, a ton of beer to just stay open. Uh, that happens all the time. You know, you want to be conserved on space. And one of the things that is actually a really good idea is a tall, skinny three and a half barrel fermenter. So if you're doing three barrel batches, you know, the taller and skinnier it is, the more you can jam into a given footprint because you're paying by the, the the square inch on the floor, not the cubic inch when you when you sign a lease, right? So uh, they have a three and a half uh, barrel, which they call the tall boy. It easily will fit through a 36 inch door. All the ports, fittings, everything is on the, the, the front of the tank. So you can tuck that into a corner or tight up against the wall. It was just helping... Somebody set a, a 30 barrel fermenter 
they're trying to get four in this one area and it's really tight and there's walls all around that can't be moved. And so we're just, you know, jockeying that for about an hour to get, you know, every last inch that we could, you know, but a fermenter like this nice, you know, that it's, it's tall, skinny, you'll, you'll do really well with something like that. And I'm sure everything else about this, I haven't personally used it, but knowing Blickman, it's going to be, it's going to be a great piece of kit. So uh, check it out. You can find it at Blickman uh, uh, Engineering uh, in the pro brewing section at uh, BlickmanEngineering.com. And if you appreciate that John Blickman for the last 15, 16 years has been paying for this show, so you don't have to, please send him a email, feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell him, thank you, John, for, for uh, sponsoring the show. And uh, there you go. Check him out. Uh, and if you're at the uh, the homebrew conference this year, San Diego, uh, I bet you Blickman Engineering will be there, and you can say hi to John Blickman yourself. Very very smart guy, but very funny guy, very humorous, great sense of humor, very professional. But you know, once you get to know him, he is one funny dude. All right, then you wouldn't be upset if somebody were to buy, say, ten three point fives instead of that thirty barrel, just to help them. Yeah save space on their rent, you know, because you know, you might pay today, but you're saving money in the long term. Well, I'm guessing that 10 3.5s is takes up more room than 130. Just, you know, nature nature of uh, volumes and stuff. Stackable. <laughs> but stackable. Let's contact John, tell him stackable. <laughs> stackable. If you if you're starting your urban brewery where price apartments or uh, spaces at a premium and yes. you don't want to buy a, a large space, but you need to be able to brew some big batches. There you go. There you go. I'm, I'm with you. So we would answer your questions. These questions come in from either you, you know, posting your questions live in the chat or sending your questions in via email to brewstrong at the brewing network.com. You send them in, we'll get to them, you know, Pretty much by the next show, not a problem. We've got some backlog that I'm I'm working through those too, but we will get to them pretty quick for you. And we do appreciate your questions. So send them in. We do really appreciate it. Here's a quick one. Question regarding brewing with style. Hey, Jamel and John, I am relatively new brewer and have a simple question regarding the recipes in brewing classic styles. If a recipe, for example, Munich Helles on page 52 has steeping grains in the extract recipe, do you still include those in the all grain version? For example, the all grain version of the Munich Helles is, has the following, or should the melanoid malt be left out? It'd be the continental Pilsner, Munich malt, and the melanoid malt. Love the shows, both your books. You've taught me so much. Kind regards, Chris. Uh, he is at uh, Australia. You guys know the answer to this, right? Yes. First off, good eye, Mike. <laughs> I hope I didn't butcher that too much. But. Yeah, it's everything plus the the pull out the DME LME, add your base grain. Yeah, the the base grain just swaps out for the DME LME, and everything else remains the same. Hops. Okay. You know, specialty grains, all that stuff. Your little paragraph at the end tells you exactly what to do and nothing more, nothing less. If you're brewing all grain, swap the this for the that. 
don't change the anything else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If it was changed to anything else, it would be in that paragraph. But there you go. Otherwise, you would have forgotten to do that about 180 times. Yes, yes. And I could just throw in, use the recipe the way it's written because they're all winners, and I've actually won with a couple of them. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, same. There you go. All right, let's do this. We'll take a short break. and We'll come back. We'll have some of your questions live from the chat when we come back right after this. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Thanks all for tuning in, especially you guys who are tuning in live. And uh, it looks like, uh, do you have a question for him from uh, Travis? We have a question from Richard George, Var- George Vargas. I, I'm assuming he goes by all three. You mean RGV? Uh, yeah, you get RGV. Linda Torres, um, RGV. So as I look at the, que- at, at the question and I see the video on Facebook and it's 30 seconds behind, and look over and your lips aren't moving. It kind of freaks me out. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, I have to mask that off because sometimes when I like get distracted, I'm like, ah, uh-huh. it's because I see things moving. Right. I keep and- mine the same way. I've kind of shrunk the Zoom screen to see us and the questions on the side. But I switched back is, uh, because then Edward threw something in on, on, on top of it that I, I had to scroll back up for Richard's. So Richard says, the general consensus is leave leave hops in dry hop too long leads to hop burn slash grassy flavor. I'm going to pause right there. And I'm, I'll just say there is a difference as you leave your hops in for X amount of time. So let's move on to uh, what uh, RGV says. His experience has been in an effort to avoid oxygen. He, uh, he likes to dry hop all his beers at high horizon. And he's had little to no hop burn or grassy flavors. Thoughts? Well, I would say that if you're the results you're getting are what you want, then absolutely just keep keep doing it. I um I don't like adding hops to fermentation because they stay in the the in the beer too long, and they become kind of harsh. And uh, I've experienced a very harsh harshness with that. We we actually did tests at Heretic for fermentation dry hopping and post-fermentation dry hopping. And in blind tasting panels, every last person 100% picked the one that was dry hopped post-fermentation. You just so, broke every philosophy ever because they've never had that occurrence. Sorry, right. anyway. Right, they always have. But it depends yeah. on the people you're, you're, you know, if you just pick random people that, you know, it's, it tastes like beer. Yeah. It's like, yeah. All right. You may get random results, but th- there's, there's a value to that too. I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing uh, brewlosophy because right. ideally, I'm sorry. ideally everybody, everybody should be able to, you know, you should get a statistically significant result from just any person, uh, beer drinker or not detecting one thing or another. Right. So, uh, but it was always, the preference was for post post-fermentation. And it's again a matter of time. You were you were saying, Travis, the there is a difference between how long you leave it in or not. 
but but Michael, I will let, I have I have a bit of a cleanup if Michael doesn't cover it. Or Michael's a well, well. So for me, as a as a hop guy in terms of dry hopping, and and I actually asked you that same question at the Brew Strong Live at Brew Chatter, and uh, but for me, I always do the after fermentation, and I just think when you do it at High Croyston, you get a lot of CO two scrubbing, and you know if if, if there's mm-hmm. certain flavors in there that are yeah not so water soluble, they're gonna get pulled wow. out by blown off and so <clears throat> i always try to do for the those kind of compounds i'm trying to get in the beer i shoot for the whirlpool so that way actually i'll leave the vegetable matter in the kettle mm-hmm. vegetable matter yep these <laughs> are nice but uh and then that way i'm basically you know putting these these materials in, in for the whole time and then when i dry hop on the homebrew level I always think as long as you're quick and I got a buddy of brews and buckets and he, he's made gold metal hazies where he opens the lid, wow. throws in his, his, his thing and closes it quick. And as long as you're quick, that's the, I mean, CO2 is heavy and, and that, that's the theory is that, or not the theory, but the, the, it works out that there's a blanket that. Well, that's, that's, that's an, another excellent point because you don't have to worry really about oxygen during fermentation everybody you know the 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 old traditional homebrew folks are like no no oxygen once it starts to ferment bs you can you, you throw it in it's fine it, it there's there's enough yeast in there even at the end of fermentation there's still so much yeast in suspension that it'll suck up any oxygen that you you've added you know the minor amount of oxygen you add you know thrown in the the dry hop so yeah Couple of good points. Yep. Would you have Travis? Yeah, the cleanup is the time your hops spend in your beer affects the flavor you get from those hops. As 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 Mike and, and Jamil both pointed out, you don't need to put it in on day two. You still have active active fermentation on day three, day four. That's fine. And towards the end, I, I, I do my dry hop one day before I think my beer is quote unquote done, and then two days later as it's cleaning up, and I've. Also, I have metal winning hazies, uh, lots of metal winning diapers and stuff. People like my beer for the most part. Maybe they say they like it just while I go away. doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I don't think you need to hop it that early. But if you like the beer, that's that's number one. You know, that is. If you like the beer, that's number one. But if you if like... No reason if to change like, oh, it if you love it. Right. If, if my Eldorado doesn't taste like Eldorado is supposed to taste and someone else is doing something different with their Eldorado, lots of beavers you can write. Well, and it's good to try other things and, you know, to taste them. And it, it could be better, you know, to do it a different way. And then if it is, absolutely, you know, make the change. If not, then then don't. All right. And then you've got another one in the in the chat. Who did you say? Yes. Edward Kent has asked, what is the best way to purge kegs of O2? We charge with CO2 to 15 PSI three times and blow off. Would it be better to fill the keg with sanitizer and blow it out with CO2? Thanks for all the great content through the years. Michael, you covered this on the, the first. I'll assume Edward's been tardy and has uh, missed. And, and rather than ask him to rewind. Edward, uh, why weren't you there for the very first moment we started? <laughs> yes, you, you've heard our feelings, Edward. Uh, Michael, you want, you want to repeat what you said? I mean, it's excellent. Advice. Yeah. So, I mean, 
the way I think about it is if you're you're filling with CO2 and then venting, I mean, essentially you're just cutting that oxygen concentration half over and over again. Yep. And if you're doing that with five gallons, there's still probably going to be, I mean, I could do the calculations, but there's going to be more oxygen in that than whereas I feel like filling with sanitizer actually does three things. You're, you're sanitizing, you're purging, and then once you've purged, I pressurize, and then I have basically a leak down test. So I'm doing three tests, that, I'm doing three tasks in the same movement. And so, and then what I do too is as I'm pushing out, if the keg is overflowing, as soon as I start to bring it down, like this tiny little volume that then I start purging with the blow off valve, is you're, you're minimizing your oxygen as best you can. So in my humble opinion, that's what I do. And that's what I would recommend. Right. So at AirTech, I did calculate because the the keg washer that we had, well, that a lot of breweries use, it had the ability to do, I think, up to three purge cycles with CO2. So to pressurize it to 60 PSI, then we it relieves the pressure, then it pressurizes 60 PSI, relieves the pressure, pressurizes 60 PSI, relieves pressure, uses a ton of CO2 and does not get the the DO out of uh, the oxygen out of the keg at all. My I think my calculation for something like 3000 parts per billion once the keg was purged three times to 60 PSI. So it doesn't work. I mean the the Better way to purge a keg is something like steam, where it, you know, doesn't have so much oxygen in it. But like Michael's saying, yeah, you know, fill it up with sanitizer, purge it. If you're going to not do Michael's method, what I would do is just hook up the CO2 to the 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 beer out arm, so the to the dip tube at the bottom. Do low, low PSI, low flow. You can, if you have like a, a regulator that one. So the other thing we had to do at Heretic was purge tanks after they were cleaned and opened to the atmosphere. We would purge them with a CO2. And the, the slower you go, I mean, I'm sure there's a, a bottom limit to it, but generally you go to, you know, in a keg, I would go to like maybe a quarter liter a minute or, you know, half liter a minute, something like that. You don't want to go so slow that it just mixes with everything. You don't want to go so fast that you're turbulent at the bottom, but you can fill the, the keg very slowly from the bottom. And then you could calculate how much, how many minutes it would take at a half a liter a minute. Let's say it's, let's use 20 liters for the size of a corny keg. So at a half a liter a minute, it's going to take 40 minutes to slowly fill that thing up and purge out. You leave the the the, the blow off the, uh, the pressure relief valve open and let it slowly purge that thing out. But it's not going to be perfect. So you're going to have some mix. So maybe you let it go for 120 minutes. So it's three times purged, which is what we did on the fermenters there. And that will get you to a pretty low DO. So that'll work. Uh, if you're really concerned about it, can I, I do this as a home brewer? I yeah. I would just I I always pressurize my purge and pressurize my kegs 
before when after I sanitized them. So I knew they were they're tight. And then I would actually open the lid. I put a little more CO2 in the bottom and then I put the beer in. And like I said, there's still yeast in the beer, unless you're you're letting it sit for a long time. There's yeast in the beer, you put it in, it the the beer going to the bottom is giving off CO2 because there's CO2 saturated, it's saturated. A lot will come out as you're filling it up. So you fill it up, it's chasing away the oxygen. And once I sealed it up, I would purge the, the headspace a few times. And I never had any problem with, with oxygen uh, caused staling. So there you go. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, no, I, I was just saying if, because you were throwing around flow rates. For yeah. me, I don't have a flow meter on my regulator at home. So what I did is I took a, a trash bag with a known volume and <laughs> taped it. And actually, I hooked it up to the dip tube, like you're saying, you and I start the clock. And then how long does it take to fill the bag at, you know, so it doesn't pressurize, but fills it. And so that would be standard temperature pressure, or at least pressure equalized. And uh, then I could get a, a general flow rate. If you're looking for a little hack without buying a, or having a, a special flow meter, there are more ways, more than one way to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And Michael, for that, for that suggestion there, you, you had 10 points. Well, I, I thought more than that, but I, I, I can offer to you, Jamil, an opportunity for Michael to give you more points. Michael said before, you know, he'd pressure is up and, and pop it, pressure it and pop it. And each time you're cutting it in half. So Michael was doing about 15 PSI. Right. Jamil's doing 60 PSI. So he's cutting it to 25% each time. Right, Mike? Uh-huh. But most but, of us homebrewers can't do 60 PSI. Right. 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 You, I, you're I think, literally diluting the, the air in there every time you 60, do it. You can do 60 in a corny keg. They're, they're good. No, no, I don't have, I don't, my regulator can't do it. Oh. Well, you can but, buy it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I would hope in this, just this conversation, like, you know, the, the concentration doesn't work out to effectively do that by just pressurizing, venting, pressurizing, venting. Exactly. That's on a full, that's vest, on a full vessel. vessel point. I'm, I'm, giving you, I'm giving you a bonus, bonus five points for bringing that up. Thanks. Good yeah. job. All right. Let's see here. I'm going to suck for the rest of the questions just so Michael wins this time. Yay. <laughs> Charity win. Did, did we do a break? No, you do it so good. We did one. We did a break. Good. Somebody's yep. keeping track. I keep forgetting to uh, to mark them down. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, William. He writes, uh, hi, guys. I am plowing through all your episodes, cycling to and from work. Thanks for a great show. Just listened to the episode on mouthfeel, and I was intrigued when Jamel claims that when claim, I didn't claim I stated that when, when brewing with lower efficiency, you should adjust only your base malt to get back to the right OG. Why is this? Example, bitter with pale ale and crystal at 70% efficiency using 8.5% crystal. Adjusting that down to 50% and only adjusting the pale ale means that the crystal goes down to 6.2. Will this not alter the sugar profile of the beer as well as the taste mouthfeel? I found that adjusting a couple of percent can make a notable difference for a beer like the one above. My efficiency varies a lot 
depending on the type of beer I'm brewing, between 50 and 75%. Okay, there's a lot to there's a lot to unpack here. So yeah, the the reason why you adjust the base malt for efficiency differences is because the efficiency of just rinsing the the sugars or the or the flavor out of specialty malts that aren't getting converted generally it's it's pretty much standard the the times i've seen conversions to you know commercial and homebrew fail is when in you know adjusting for efficiency they adjust everything and so all of a sudden you have way too much roasted malt way too much crystal malt you know, to, to, to do a, um, a homebrew version of a commercial beer. It's way over the top or vice versa. You'll do it. And the, the commercial brewery, they will ratchet everything down because they're getting a much higher efficiency than the homebrewer does. You know, they're in the 85 nineties homebrew recipe, maybe in 70 and they end up it tastes nothing like the beer because all the specialty malts were not present. So yeah, it's a little counterintuitive, but that's, that's the crux of it. But he's also saying his efficiency is varying between 50 and 75%. I mean, what the heck is that? How's he sparging? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know why. I I imagine if you were like, okay, I'm going to do 10, I've got, you know, I'm going to do 10 gallons of barley wine or, you know, Belgian quad or something really, you know, high gravity. And then I'm trying to do on the next batch, I'm trying to do five gallons of, you know, ordinary bitter all in the same system. Yeah. I could see having some difficulties with efficiency there. You're going to get some, some efficiency difficulties, but if you're always doing, you know, the same volume of batch, you should get pretty close to the same thing. You shouldn't see 50 to 75, you know, a few points of difference, maybe. I can't tell if Will is, is asking something theoretical or something he's witnessed because if his beer efficiency, brew house efficiency is varying that much, let's focus on that before we focus on the recipes. Uh-huh. Agree. If you yeah, don't if Will, have, you're looking- uh, what is in um, at Davis at UC Davis? Charlie Banforth talks about repeatability and reproducibility. Yeah, and you got to nail those down. Right, and you got to be able to, to to make the same beer twice, or at least your process produces the same kind of similar. Like you're saying, there's going to be some variance based on style and and gravity, mm-hmm. but it shouldn't be varying. I mean, that's from fifty to seventy-five. That's a fifty percent change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's that's and, maybe and, he's. He's kind of exaggerating a little bit. Possibly. Um, I would wonder if he's, because a lot of times people do not get the efficiency thing correct. They, you know, if it's more humid out or warmer or colder or drier, you tend to evaporate more or less based on weather conditions. And that may be part of it. You know, he's in, he's in the UK you know, UK in the summer versus UK in the winter could could have enough enough difference, and and so you're you're seeing more evaporation or not. And and one of the things everybody should be doing is 
you should have a precise way of measuring your kettle volume. You should, and it could be as simple as a yardstick or, you know, some stick that you've got measures on. And one of the things to remember when you're checking your volumes on this, when it's hot, when it's boiling, it's 4% larger than the, when it's cold or when it's, you know, fermentation temperature. So you have to kind of take that into account. Sounds like nothing, but that 4% makes a big difference. Right. Especially, you know, if you're trying to, you know, but you should, you should be ending at the same volume every time, every time you brew, you should collect the same volume. You should finish at the same volume after boil. And once you've done that, then you can start looking at efficiency. Uh, If not, you can calculate, you know, what your efficiency was, even if your volumes are different, but having having your your volumes consistent really helps with what you're doing so and, and that sounds sorry mike no i i have a a, a brew chair live question if you have time for it but oh let me uh yeah so, so that sounds hypercritical but it's not i mean don't take that as a reflection on your brewing just keep working on your process until you can nail those uh, we're all uh, here I, to make better beer yeah yeah sorry go ahead mike so this is actually a problem I've been having is I've been calculating my efficiencies after the louder. So like pre-boil kettle, I'll take a gravity, use that against FTGB to get an efficiency. But then yeah. I boil right, and then I take another gravity and, you know, based on the volume change, I'm trying to keep them, you know, I guess I'm not truly factoring for temperature. So there's probably some wiggle in there, but. I mean, actually, I am because I was actually thinking about it because I take the sample, then I cool it down so I can get a gravity. So they're all. Are you measuring bricks or gravity? I use SG usually. Okay, so SG is really close to linear. Bricks is not linear. So you, yeah. I mean, if, if, if you're temperature correcting, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you because I, I, I've been tweaking my spreadsheet for 10 years now. I used to do it on bricks. Bricks is just not linear. Five gallons at 10 bricks down to 2.5 gallons is not equal 20 bricks, but five gallons at, in at stupid numbers, five gallons at 1040, boiled down to 2.5 gallons, should be really close to 1080. So you're saying, um, say, and do you go to points then to do the, cause I was, I'm just yes, trying to like, yes, the, the, the ratio 10. of the beginning to 10. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is the five times 40 equals the 2.5 times 80. And on my anvil for over a year straight, I am exactly two points difference pre versus post in that multiplication. So I, if, if I'm dead on OG, I know I'm going to be two points low FG. Now that's, that's not as linear as 10 and five or five and 2.5. It's 7.13 down to 6.5. And it's, it's probably a measurement error that I'm doing, but points get rid of that one times it by a thousand points are so mm-hmm. damn linear. Where bricks aren't, but uh, the breweries love bricks. Jamil, you love bricks. Plato, but you know, specific yeah. gravity is fine too. It's just at least in the U.S., it's more common to use Plato. I think in the U.K., they they use specific gravity all the time. Uh, yeah. Well, and Michael, I think you got a great point about you know you can check your efficiency right before the boil. It gets a little thrown off if if you're one of those people that hits your burner the 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 moment you get like a half inch in your kettle. 
and you start, you know, you're, you're, you're boiling and, and you're heating as you, as you fill, if you, if you don't heat it up, then you could get, I mean, you could do a correction, I guess, on it for temperature, but yeah, that's, that's been my biggest bugaboo in the last probably five or six brews. I've, I've started to notice that my, my mash efficiencies are, are bang, bang. I can hit that number. I mean, I can predict it almost down to the percent, but then mm-hmm. from bolt, from, from kettle full to, to, to flame out. And then actually, even when I go to pitch, I'm, I'm kind of missing there and there's, there's some fluff in there I'm working out versus, I mean, I, I, I'm even thinking cause I make starters and I haven't really done the, the uh, calculations to account for an extra liter and a half of, whatever the OG, I don't even take gravity readings of my starters. So there's a little unknowns there too. Mm-hmm. So that was my Bruce Strong life question. <laughs> so, so ladies and well, gentlemen, if you email a, it to uh, yeah, Bruce Strong, I will. Yeah, yeah. We'll get, we'll get to it on the Facebook. And within five years, we'll get to it. That's not, not a problem. All right, let's do another quick break. And when we come back, more of your questions right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're uh, answering your questions live. Uh, if you're if you're listening live in the in the chat room, uh, go in there and uh, hammer out a question. We're happy to uh, to cover it for you. If not, you can also email them to uh, brewstrong at thebrewingnetwork.com, and we will get to them uh, quite quickly now because we're 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 prioritizing the the ones that just come in so don't worry uh but we will get to all the ones that have been sent in uh nathaniel uh he says uh greetings ye stewards of stalwart suds a couple of questions for you what might what effect might co2 have on flavor extraction when dry hopping I have a beer already kegged and carbonated that now seems to me like it would taste even better with a healthy dose of nugget hops. If I were to degas the keg, open it up, and toss a handful of hops in there now, would the CO2 that's in solution pose any problems uh, to extracting the flavor from these hops? Also, I tend to make... Oh, let's see. Uh, All right. He's got two questions here. All right. Let's deal with the uh, CO2 in solution pose any problems to extracting the flavor from these hops. Yeah, I was distracted and I missed your question, so I'll catch you up while Michael gets some in. So the real thing it comes down to is bubble size. And CO2 will extract at a higher efficiency of inorganic or of organic compounds that are nonpolar at a a smaller bubble size way more so like when i dry hop i'll hook up the bottom drain and i just there's no stone or anything so it's just giant bubbles i am not worried about extraction at all because these bubbles are huge their surface area to volume ratios are huge are 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 not conducive to mass transfer and then what i would say is as long as you don't flash your beer like as in open that lid and let the pressure change you're not going to get a huge amount of foam or, or co2 emission 
you would be able to add that and then CO2 in solution doesn't extract anything because it's not leaving. So you'd be fine. I think, you know, one of the issues could be, you know, you, you, I think he's talking about relieving the pressure on the top of the keg mm. opening the lid and throwing his hops in. You could do that, get your keg as cold as possible before you do it, and then get the lid back on as quickly as possible because yep. you can cause the, 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 the hops are going to act like nucleation sites and the CO2 sites coming out very yeah. quickly. So one thing very common in a lot of breweries is they'll go to dry hop a keg that's, you know, got a fair amount of carbonation in it just from fermentation. They'll throw the hops in and then beer will come shooting out the dry hop pour it out the top. And we'll it's like you speak we'll, from experience. We'll coat, coat the the coat the uh coat the ceiling and and you have to throw away insulation. <laughs> It's like the, the Mentos and a Coke. Yes, Mentos and a Coke. Very good, very good example. So uh, it's interesting yeah, though. When they when they do the the CO two extraction of of hops, they use you know uh, liquid form CO two, yeah. don't they? Yeah, it's cryogenic. It's liquid form. It's really really cold. Right. Michael, is that like sub two sixty? You get CO two liquid. What is that temperature? Well, see, the problem with CO2 is it doesn't really uh, end up in liquid form unless you pressurize it. It actually so, will um, deposit as dry ice. Right. So you have to actually do it under pressure if you want PSI. liquid. Yeah. So that's a curve. High then. pressure, yeah. And then you can get it to actually go from being super critical to, or, you know, above the, uh, the is that condensation point? Triple uh, point. All right. Then he asks, also, I tend to make my yeast starters the night before I brew. Thus, I typically pitch them after about 18 to 24 hours. I leave the starter on the stir plate this entire time. Do you recommend this or is it unnecessary? If I was to not pitch that starter until, let's say, 48 hours, would it be detrimental to the yeast to leave it on the stir plate that entire time? Thanks in advance for answering my questions and thanks for all the years of service you've done to the homebrewing community. If you leave it on the starter for, so technically, depending on the the stir bar, it's a completely flat stir bar. You know, there's the ones with the rings in the middle, kind of keep it up off the bottom. But the stir bar, flat stir bar across the bottom of the, could pop some yeast cells. That, that really? can, yeah. Generally, you know, the liquid, it, floats on the liquid but there could be some damage to the yeast cells i don't really worry about it but the reason i wouldn't go 48 hours after with a stir plate and most yeast most volumes of starters that you're gonna do you know within 18 20 some odd hours the growth of yeast is completely done there's no more growth that's going to happen at that point. I would turn it off just from that and I would put it in the fridge and let it settle out. And then when when time to brew comes, I would decant the, the spent starter wort. So you're not adding that to your beer. And then I'd leave a little bit in there so I could swish it around and then I would pitch just the yeast. And I think that that is 
is probably the ideal way to do it versus just leaving it sitting there warm for 48 hours. So it's going to end up using up some of its energy reserves sitting there warm for 48 hours versus you chill it. It, it tends to right. build its glycogen reserves, et cetera. Also, why, why pitch the spent word? The, the quote-unquote beer that right. smells like other beer that we don't buy and drink typically. Exactly. I, I was going to say, based on um, my readings in, in uh, this book called How to Brew, he, John talks a lot about either pitching at high croissant, the starter, when it's really going, or... 12 to 12 to 12 to 16 12 to 18 hours somewhere in there turning off the stir plate because that way you're kind of cutting off the oxygen and then the yeast will go to sleep like they'll they'll keep their trihalose and and the you know yeah. nutrient reserves and go to sleep and that way you're not pitching tired he said i remember in the, the how to brew is if you leave that starter the stir plate running the whole time Mm-hmm. And at least in how to brew, he talked about you, you'd be pitching the yeast tired. They won't have any reserves. I mean, that might be kind of based on just conversations on the show or something, but the 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 thing is, oxygen's no no issue to the yeast. The yeast will use as much oxygen as they can get generally. The 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 thing is growth is done generally before all the sugars are utilized you don't fully use utilize all the sugars in growth but so there's a there's a point that the yeast manufacturers know where when uh you've reached a certain point they actually crash chill their yeast and it causes the yeast to build their glycogen reserves. So it's good for storage, good for use later on. This is one of the reasons that Y Labs can make yeast and send it to you, you know, several weeks later and it's in peak, peak condition is because they've used that. If you let them go further until like the very end of things, you know, until you don't see any action going or or whatever, and you think it's all completely done, you're not going to get the same level of glycogen reserve in there. And this is why other packages so, that aren't necessarily smack packs might swell when warmed, right? Because they've artificially halted the yeast to keep, uh, as Michael was talking about, or the glycogen reserves. Right. And Very interesting. The, the um. So, I'm trying to think about what, what you said there, Michael. Sorry. But I, I, I mean, I almost designed my process straight out of how to brew, where it was that 12 to 12 to 16 hour period of, of stirring, shut it down, let it settle, goes in the fridge by 24 to 48, or 24 to 36, no longer than 48. And I've had pretty, pretty awesome. Results. I mean, I could, I mean, that's, you know, I'm kind of leaning on, on how to brew. So. Yeah. That's generally what uh, the process is. Yeah. Um, I would just, I, I, I would not leave a starter on a stir plate for a long period of time. 48 hours is probably too much. 
you know, uh, generally I would start it one day, the next day I would pull it off. I would put it in the fridge, chill it, pour off the, the spent work and then use the, the yeast then. It, can I just one last experience thing? Uh-huh. So this fridge I keep at 31 for conditioning. I don't recommend putting a starter in that kind of fridge because I felt like I kind of stunned them by going below freezing. So yeah, well, so that was kind of, I felt like I ended up almost with a with a, a stuck fermentation because I I, I don't know if I can attribute it exclusively to that. But. Well, there's yeah, there's a couple of things, and I'm not sure how the yeast manufacturers are chilling their yeast cultures down. But if you drop the temperature too rapidly, you will cause the yeast to express uh, heat shock proteins, and the heat shock. But you get a heat shock from chilling as you right. do eating. So too rapidly a chilling could cause them to and and. Generally, it shouldn't be that much of a problem, but what happens is it utilizes its resources in creating these 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 proteins that it wouldn't normally if you if you didn't if you didn't do that. So um, I I always you know tried to chill it down a little slower than that. I wouldn't put it into like a freezing situation. Right. Essentially, you know, uh, I would I would put it into uh, you know, just start chilling it down. And then what I preferred to do was kind of grow my, my yeast like a week in advance. And then the day of brewing, I would take sterile wort and I would add that to the yeast and get them active and fully active and then pitch that at a high croissant. You smack pack them. Essentially, yeah. Essentially. And, and you know, with, with the yeast of high croissant and you've, you've grown up a bunch of healthy yeast and you, you know, um, you, you haven't tired out the yeast by leaving them in too long. And then you add the, uh, you add the wort, the starter wort, you, you, you get pretty much the best results that you're going to get. Let's see here. Okay. Time for a break. Uh, let's see here. I think Travis is like pseudo the the show producer. He's always on top of the breaks. He's on top of the questions. He's on it. <laughs> He's our new Bevo. Oh, it's it's uh, or, yeah. or Jamil's lackey, whatever he calls it. You know, Travo. Travo. Yeah, we got <laughs> ready for Travo. Not quite as good looking as Bevo, but he's in. Oh my god. I'm sure you just hurt her feelings. Can I be watch porno, this shit? Can I be porno Sorry. <laughs> porno Steve. You do kind of look like porno Steve. Let's see here. All right. Alexi uh, asks, hello, a couple of questions for Jamel. One, he speaks about brewing constantly to get better. Is he speaking about brewing full five to 10 gallon batches or as long as your process is the same, can you do smaller brews, two to three gallons? I, I mean, Yes and no. I, I think there's a lot of aspects of brewing that you could get familiar with and perfect doing smaller batches. Sure. I, I don't think it's wasted, but part of you know repetitive brewing is getting to know your equipment, 
and your measurements and all that stuff and to get repeatability. And repeatability is a great thing in brewing. And because once you're able to repeat your process over and over and over, the uh, then that's your opportunity to start changing recipes. You know, once once you've mastered the actual physical aspect of brewing. So, um, yeah, you could do that. Absolutely. But eventually you need to, you know, do be repetitive on the equipment and the scale that you're doing it. Yeah, I, I, w- I would also just say, too, as somebody who started out doing one gallon batches, um, your instruments to be able to measure ingredients and yeast pitches and pop additions at those smaller volumes become a little more tricky and the bigger you go or like you know even five gallon is kind of the the reason it's the norm is because that's where i think ingredients and and your process becomes more repeatable because that decimal point has been moved mm-hmm. and 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 you know making having a having a scale with an error of 0.1 grams at mm-hmm. five gallons is nothing who cares yeah. And versus if you're doing one gallon, that's that, that mistake's been multiplied five times. Yeah. So. That's a good point. Well, well, how was it for you scaling from your one gallon to your five gallon or your 10 gallon, whatever you're on now? I mean, because I, I think the question is sure you can learn and obviously you, you have brewing on one gallon, but you're going to scale sooner or later. So every one of your recipes is going to change in some degree, not just by a multiple five. Yeah. I mean, for me, I was on a Pico brew, which I pretty much nailed down. The efficiency was, I mean, not good. And so my recipes kind of got flipped upside down once I got to my, I do 10 gallons at a time now, but at least in terms of grasping the science and understanding the concepts and getting kind of a, an, an introductory where you're not making huge investments. I mean, maybe if it's something you can kind of see if you want to do, but I would say if you're trying to take that step from making beer to making great beer, award-winning beer, the the volumes that are, are typically talked about at homebrew scale are, I think there's a reason for that. And there's a reason that the yeast packs are all sized for five gallons. And, and it's just, it becomes more controllable at the, the instruments that we typically use, I guess. And that, that, that's, a, my, again, these are all my experiences and my opinions and my readings, so... I feel like the word you were looking for was beer, you know, making beer to making beer. We put the test, we put the testicles and technical, <laughs> or is it technical and testicle? I don't know. One of those. That was always my favorite. That was always my favorite read right there. <laughs> I thought you liked uh, was, was it, uh, the, the, we're like the Lance Armstrong of brewing, except That's for that right. thing. Um, <laughs> All right. So second question is, is the online Siebel course uh, respected in the brewing field? I'm looking at getting some experience to perhaps move into the field. Do I need to just suck it up and go to either UC Davis or the on-site Siebel course? He has a bachelor of science in biology. Yeah. I, I don't think, I don't think it matters. I think personally, I think much higher of UC Davis than uh, Siebel, but Siebel's good too. American Brewing School or Brewing, American Brewing, what, what's it called? Out on the Academy. East Coast. Yeah, I, I actually hired somebody from there. So I, I think it's more important that you show that you are, that you've studied and you, you've 
put the extra effort into learning about about brewing before you go in the field, that shows up on on the resume. It doesn't matter which one it is. That shows up. I think personally, I think Davis is better, but you know, I may be I may be partial to it. But too. But uh, any of them, any of them is good. Whatever you can afford, whatever whatever is you know works best for you. Go ahead and do it, and it'll 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 help you. All right, let's take a quick break, and then uh, we will hit, hit the last question in the chat, and then we're done. All right, we'll be back right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like. Wine guys, brew strong. All right, we're back answering your questions live. And uh, Jesus has a question. It's a it's a very easy one. It's a yes or no question. You guys have any experience with Philly sours or sourvisier, sourvisier, acidification during fermentation? So it's kind of like yes or no, and I, I'm partial. I've been I've had a Jason experience, but not direct experience. Jamil, yes or no? Yeah, it's it's uh so I haven't heard of Philly Sours. I mean so is, is every sour. every location now doing their own version of sours? No, it's it's, it's, a, it's a different uh it's a different yeast. Philly sour uh I heard of before the sour VCA. Uh-huh. Uh but they're they're both uh I think they're both sac that reduce lactic during fermentation. Uh-huh. What is it? How does that make it a Philly sour? It, they, if you buy the package from Lala, I think it's Lalamond, uh-huh. it's it's called Philly sour. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. reach out to them and ask them why it's called Philly why? sour, but sour BCA yeah. and Philly sour, two different two different manufacturers, similar. Did somebody in Philly like throw their underwear in 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 the in the fermenter and and they it might have been a pretty horse and it comes with uh, peppers and onions. What? <laughs> Peppers and onions, go catch a field game. There you go. It, it, it might have been a pretty <laughs> horse, you know, or a sour horse. You know, I don't know, because that's also known as a Philly. You know, Philly. I don't, I don't know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so the so right. The the yeast that that do the the souring, it's they're actually pretty good. I've tasted a, a, a number of beers that have been made with that method. And and they're and they're good. They're generally clean. I think. The the reason that some people will don't go that route is that they don't quite get the acidification that they want. So some people want to go a little further. So I was just talking to a friend of mine who won gold medal at GABF with his his sour beer, and that was using the the kettle souring method that that uh, we had used at, at Heretic, which is. You get your your mash, you boil for 15 minutes, uh, and then you cool it down. And then once you're down to about you know 100, 104 degrees Fahrenheit, you add uh, plantarum. I did this at Fuller's in England. We used plantarum and did, did the same thing. It turns turns out great. It's it's clean and uh, you know it's it, so so that that works out well. And then you you heat it up again kill the bacteria and then you you transfer pitch your whatever yeast you want to ferment with and that works great and you have a much better control over the ph you can you can get it down a little bit lower whereas this friend of mine he was telling me that 
he tried those yeasts and he was getting, uh, he wasn't quite able to get as low as he wanted using the, those yeasts. So I think you have less control over it if you use these uh, souring yeasts versus using a bacteria that will take it down even lower. And you, then you just cut it off with, with heat when you're, when you're done. You can't do that in the fermenter. So that's, that's kind of the, the drawback on that, Jesus, is um, not having the control you want. I think that the, the flavor quality is there. And, you know, now more brewers are going to do it because it's just cheaper and easier. And that's why, like, barrel-aged sours are, are dying because nobody wants to put in the, 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 the effort and the cost into doing it because nobody will pay more for them these days because yeah. the average customer just doesn't know about it. We in all fairness, a lot of those were not very good. Some of those were excellent. Some of them needed to go away. That's a good point. Well, a lot of the, a lot of the sour beers that people are making can can be pretty horrible. Um, yes, you know, there's there's great but, ones, but there's also bad ones. But but Berliner slash sour BCA slash Philly sour. They're not exactly the same, but that's one style versus true sours, mm. you know, where if you don't like Cantillon, you probably don't like true sours True. to your point. And, right. and not everybody can pull that off. It's a whole lot easier to pull off, in my opinion, a Berliner style or a ghost style than it is a nine months aging in a barrel. Hope you get something out drinkable. Right. Right. That's, yeah. But I've, I've had some uh, that I know were brewed with sour BCA and but well, they're they're not straight Berliners, which even if Berliner is not a straight Berliner, you add some fruit stuff after, you know, a little bit of the uh, what do you call it? The, there's the green stuff and the red stuff. The juice. The, the, yes. The juice. Yes. Yes. And they look at you very funny in Berlin if you say I want one straight. Right. They look at you sideways. Uh, but but uh, I, I think if you're going for a fruited Berliner style sour, those products can make you a decent one for sure. That sure. you have to put in the work to make it go to where you want. And as you said, it may not end up at the pH you want, whether that's too high or too low. Too right. high, throw some lactic in, you're already not following the process. Who cares? Too low? I don't know. Good luck. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if you're if you're home brewing and want to do it, I, I think it's a, a great way to go. You know, if it doesn't turn out sour enough, you could always just spike it with a little bit of lactic acid. Yeah. I think, you know, that's fine. Commercially, yeah, I, I don't know. So I, I guess just from, for me, I, <clears throat> I can't really speak to sours, so that's why I've been uniquely quiet right now. I, I really haven't <laughs> taken a stab at sour. I mean, well, yeah. I look at it, I look at it as a, a whole nother realm. Like you guys are talking about the different ways to achieve sourness, the control of pH, the, I mean, even as a home brewer, there's considerations about sanitation and being able to maintain, like, I know that five gallons can become sour only, at least mm -hmm. that's what the rumor is. And so I, I uh, would recommend trying the sour VCA. If, yeah. you, if, if you're just starting in sours, brewing sours, I would try the sour VCA. I, I think that that's a good move. And then once you've done that, if you like, Oh, I want more sour or less sour or something like that. Then yeah. try doing the plantarum thing. I think it's a better way. And then, God forbid, maybe you get into, you know, the various bacterias and wild yeasts and stuff and do it a barrel-aged sour over a couple of years, and that'd be fantastic. 
Yeah. So it, it, I think I think I'm right on this, Jamil. One is natural, one's created. And I think the Philly might be one they found, and the South Asia um, might be one they made. There you go. All right. And I have I I don't I don't care either way. I, I think I've gotten past that hump for making good beer. Uh huh. But for memory, and you know, sooner or later we'll have a thousand listeners that'll say that Travis guy he's totally freaking off on that. You know? Anyway, well, you and me both. I'm sure. All right. Yeah, all of us are going to be. What a bunch of. <laughs> what a bunch of idiots! <laughs> you know, listenership's just going to go in the tank. It's just. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just so you know. Poor Justin. He's gonna. He's gonna have to like get an actual job. All right. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate you guys tuning in, especially live uh, and asking your questions. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Uh, Edward, thank you. Richard, thank you. Scott, Scott, you. Yeah. Thank you, Travis. Thank you, Michael. Another great show. Make sure if you appreciate this, reach out to to John Blickman at Blickman Engineering. You can send him an email, feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. It actually goes directly to John Blickman. Uh, That's not some lackey checking these. It's John Blickman that reads them. And he does appreciate it. You can tell him uh, uh, how much you appreciate it. Uh, he's a great guy. And uh, if you're at the conference in San Diego this year, you know, go go up to him. Just say, hey, thank you. You know, he's, he's a, just a, a lovely person to, to talk with and, and hang out with. So hopefully we'll see you there. Until then, everybody, Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong.